Good evening and welcome. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the Middle East Center, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to the second session of our Monday night seminars, examining the political options following the Gaza War. Before we begin, may I just remind everyone that in the event of a fire, there are three escapes from this room. They're marked by green lights over the doors, but there's two on either side here, there's one in the back. The doors here lead down a staircase and outside directly. So if there's a source of fire from there, please make your way to these doors and out. And could I please ask once again that no one obstruct that back aisle at the back of the hall, so that in the event that we needed to evacuate the room, that we could do so without obstruction. So please keep that back aisle free. Thank you. Last week, we opened the seminar series setting out the agenda of what we hope to achieve in creating a platform for dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians, examining what the political options coming out of the Gaza war might look like. Our view in that was that we wanted to privilege the voices of politically engaged people who have the most at stake, and to avoid the tendency that we have outside of Israel and Palestine to say what we think reasonable solutions should be and then try and impose them on the people involved. We thought that it would be most constructive for us to hear directly from people from the region. And in that spirit tonight, it is with great pleasure that I uh, welcome Professor Yael Tamir, the president of Eight Barrel College, to address the seminar. Uh, Professor Tamir is, uh, as I said, president of Big Barrel, one of Israel's oldest colleges, a liberal art college, that would seem very much in line with her own political views and trainings. No stranger to Oxford, she returns to her alma mater tonight, where she was a student at Balliol College from 1985 to 1989, working with the legendary Isaiah Berlin to examine the seeming oxymoron of liberal nationalism. It was a theme that she was to make her own in two books published with Princeton University Press. The first, uh, Liberal Nationalism, uh, came out in 1993. And more recently, in 2019, Why Nationalism? Still a good question. <laughs> One of the founders of Peace Now, Yuli was elected to the Knesset in 2003 as a Labour MK, where she served for seven years. But even before entering the Knesset as a member of parliament, she was invited to serve as a uh, member of cabinet, her first post being to Minister of Immigrant Absorption in Ehud Barak's government in 1999. She then returned to cabinet in 2006 when uh, Ehud Barak invited her to serve in, her, in his cabinet. Yeah, I'm sorry, Olmert. Olmert the first one, Barak the second one. Other way around. <laughs> I'm revealing myself to be a scholar of the Arab world. <laughs> but at any rate, in 2006, regardless of who the Prime Minister was, he was invited to serve in cabinet as education minister. Through her years in uh, academia, as a political activist in the Knesset and in the cabinet, Yuli has developed the kind of networks and understanding of the society and the politics of Israel that would be unmatched. And so we were delighted that she accepted our invitation to come and speak tonight to us about public opinion in Israel 
and the constraints that that imposes on the political options after the 7th of October. Would you please join me in extending a very warm welcome to you tonight. Thank you, Eugene. It's a pleasure to be back at Oxford. Um, uh, when Eugene first wrote to me whether uh, I would come and join uh, the seminar, which was early after the events of uh, 7th of October, I wrote back, I usually say I'm happy to come, but I can't possibly write the word happy, so I would say I'm willing to come. And I think that captures the feeling that I still have, uh, and is still very common in Israel today, about the events. It's very hard to convey the depth of the sadness and the mourning we experience on a daily basis. I work a lot, so when I go to bed, usually I'll tell you a secret. I open my Facebook and I look for recipes, because I love cooking. <laughs> so I like that and I see all this nice thing, and so maybe Friday evening I'll do this, I'll do that. I don't open my Facebook anymore. Because if I open my Facebook, I see faces of young, dead people their families, their stories. It's like an endless row of death. And I think this experience shapes the way we now live and feel and function. Grief is very difficult to deal with. And national grief is even harder to deal with because your own grief is echoed everywhere. On news, in the street, people, you know, people don't ask you anymore on the street, how are you? Because nobody knows what to say. People say, well, considering, that's the answer. Namely, considering the terrible things that are happening around us, I'm surviving. The daily pressure to Witness what happened on the 7th of October is enormous and I think shapes a collective experience of trauma, probably similar maybe only to the six uh, to the Yom Kippur War, to the 73 war. I definitely I'm not going to use the Holocaust as an example. I don't think the Holocaust is a proper example, though it is very common in Israel now to talk about the Holocaust. I think it's a terrible thing, but we need proportion. And the thing that we lack now on all sides is proportion. So one day I heard this interview with a, a very old lady from one of the kibbutzim. You know, now the heroes of Israel are the kibbutzim grandmothers who are really resilient and stood in unbelievable, terrible condition to defend their grandchildren and their children. 
and she's a Holocaust survivor, and um, she was asked, you know, she stayed in a room with two little babies for 14 hours, hardly survived, her son was killed, and they said to her, so it's like the Holocaust. And she said, no. In the Holocaust, I was there for four years, and I had no state. It's not the same thing. And I think it's very important for us to say that something terrible, shattering, uh, happened to us. But still, um, we can go on. And the question, I think, that is on the table here today is how can we structure a better future? Now, it is very difficult under these circumstances to be positive or open or even express empathy to the sorrow and the pain of the other side. Because I'm sure that if you have somebody from Gaza standing here, they would express horror and fear and devastation. And I think they can't see us and we can't see them at the moment because it is all about survival. And when you try to survive, you first look around you and you try to protect your soul and yourself and your friends. And only then you are able to go further. So the question what Israel thinks at the moment, if there is such a, an answer, is a bit irrelevant because thoughts are now grounded in animosity, in fear, in revenge, in a desire to somehow regain some security in the future of Israel. But as we all know, this is something amazing that I learned time and again, humans are more resilient than they think they are. And we haven't reached yet the point of resilience, but we will reach it. And when we will reach it, it will be the beginning of uh, a moment of reflection. So first of all, I have very little expectation of reflectiveness among Israelis right now. I would love to have a government that reflects, but uh, you don't want to hear what I think about this government. <laughs> Regardless of what happened in October, I think our government is now exactly doing the opposite, the opposite of what should be done. Uh, it incites the public to be more extreme rather than somehow help it to manage the crisis. And the crisis is real. They haven't created the crisis, the Hamas created the crisis. But how you treat the crisis means a lot. And when you start thinking about something in a certain way, uh, that shapes also the solutions that, are, uh, that seem feasible to you. So I would like to say one more thing before I sort of try and reflect about 
where we're going from here. Uh, just because I think that it is, I said this is not a Holocaust, but it is a traumatic, horrifying event in the history of Israel. And I think it shows something about the Hamas and our enemies on the other side. I've been supporting negotiations with the Palestinians since I was very young. In retrospect, maybe too young to have an opinion, but you know, I um, still believe that if there would be some good development in the Middle East, it would be based on negotiations with the Palestinians. But I don't see the Hamas as a possible partner in this scene. That is, I think, something that is very important to remember. And this is why the 7th of October is not just another intifada or another case where you are asked to respond to um, a violent but nevertheless political uh, national liberation movement. <coughs> if you read the Hamas Covenant, and I wish all these people who shout Israel should be free from the river to the sea would read the Hamas Covenant, um, you would see that the only purpose of the Hamas is a jihad. It's a religious war. It's to annihilate Israel, kill the Jews, kill the infidels. It's a jihadic movement. And with the jihadic movement, I can't see a point of negotiation. <coughs> and when people say to me, from the river to the sea, I understand that I have no place in that solution. The whole idea of reconciliation is that two, the two sides will find a less satisfying yet livable solution. And the Hamas doesn't want us to live. And I think that should be extremely clear. And what they have done on the 7th of October meant to frighten us to death, and it did. Because it wasn't just killing people. It was the abuse, it was the rape, it was the beheading, it was burning people alive, it was something that is, for me, outside of the human range of actions. And it was purposeful. We saw the people from the Hamas coming with instructions how to do it because they wanted us to be afraid, and we are afraid. Israel has been shrinking since the war to the center. No one in the south, no one in the north. So the Hamas conquered Israel by fear. And by the way, we do the same thing to Gaza. It's about making people so frightened that they go away. But as we know, the truth of the matter is nobody's going to go away because we don't have where to go and they don't have where to go. So I think that at some point, uh, the, the dialogue will have to change. And I think the question that we're asking ourselves right now is, can we change the present dialogue? So 
the first thing that I think is extremely important to understand, that nothing will change until the hostages will be brought back home safely. This sign is the sign of bringing back the hostages. Everybody in Israel lives the experience of the hostages every hour of the day. If you go out of the Israel now, you go to the airport, there are pictures. You go to a shopping mall, there are pictures. People have it constantly in their mind. Especially that we know now that the people that are kept there have been tortured, raped, abused, and some, not some, quite a lot of them die every day. Many of them are elderly, many of them are women, most of the children came back, except two that we don't know whether they are alive or not. But releasing the hostages is something that is absolutely absolutely necessary for any future solution. No Israelis that right, left, center would say we can survive with a solution that does not bring the hostages back home. So that's, I think taking the hostages was one of the most, uh, not only brutal, but one of the most influential aspects of what happened. And it's now, if there is really a firm precondition for everything else, is the hostages. Second is that in order for the hostilities to be, to end, people in the north and the south should feel safe to go back home. My family lives partly in Manara, which is a kibbutz on the north, and partly in Re'im, which is a kibbutz on the south. They are all evacuees now. Nobody wants or can go back home. Third of Israel is evacuated now. People need to be able to go back home. Israel cannot, no country, it's not Israel, forget about Israel. Maybe some countries can live with, you know, with people being held in captivity. I think the Japanese, I think, lived for many years with people held in Korea. The Americans lived with people being held in Vietnam. Israel, no. But territorially, Israel cannot survive this way now. People need to go home, and they need to have enough of a security to go home and feel safe when they go home with their children and their families. So finding a guarantee, and I know there are no absolute guarantees, there are no eternal guarantees, I'm realistic, I'm old, I've seen everything. But at least enough of a guarantee that people will be able to go back home is absolutely essential. And you should remember that the people there in the south that were slaughtered were not only the best people, they were peace lovers. The people that were slaughtered uh, were active in the peace movement. They used to go to Gaza to help the Gazans um, survive. Uh, I don't think they made the Gaz life in Gaza wonderful because life in Gaza has been terrible for many years, but they were the people who were fighting for people in Gaza. Our friend Vivian Silver, who were burned to ashes, was one of the biggest peace activists. 
She was burned in her home, alive. People will not take this risk again. And I, I decided not to bring pictures because I think there is now too many, you know, it's a tyranny of the eye. We see it a lot and we think, and we don't think enough. Because seeing is now dictating how we react and what you see is really hard to take in. So I know a lot of people who come from Israel now show all these terrible videos. I decided not to do it. I think you are all able to imagine that in your minds. But people need security in Israel. And the third thing is that we all need, whether it's the Israelis, the Palestinians, and I think the region, because don't forget, this is a regional issue, okay? We are not disconnected from the conflict between the United States and Iran. Iran is a big player in this game. Iranian forces from the Houthis in Yemen that we didn't know even exist, I must say, everybody Israel in the beginning said, what? why are they part of the game? Uh, to the Hezbollah, uh, to the jihad, Islamic Jihad, it's an Iranian game and it's an Iranian game played against the American-Saudi cooperation that brings the two power into play, unfortunately, in our region. By the way, for those of you who know, and I think many of you know the history of this region, most of our trouble begin and ends with the fact that we are in this tiny piece of the world where everybody tried to control and then left in a way that created a conflict. The Ottomans, the Brits, um, the Middle East is somehow being divided and uh, left alone to solve its own problems. And now I think, and that's I think the most important message, we cannot solve it on our own. There is not enough uh, resources, military resources, human resources, leadership resources in um, the region to move ahead. Gaza is paralyzed. Whether the Hamas is there or not at the moment, uh, I don't think they can do anything but survive. Israel is on a survival mode. Jordan is terrified that Islamic fundamentalism will start erupting in Jordan. Egypt is terrified that Islamic fundamentalism will erupt in Egypt. Think about how unwilling the Egyptians are even to open the door for a period of time to allow the people of Gaza to move out. They, they block the road, and you probably all know the map, right? Gaza is this little, little thing, and Egypt is this huge thing, and if some Palestinians would have crossed the border and stayed in some camps across the border from Gaza and into Egypt, nothing would happen to Egypt. Egypt is enormous, right? It's a Sinai. I served in the Sinai, I know the Sinai well, enough place for us, the Palestinians, and two more nations who want to live there. Uh, it's really a huge desert. But the Egyptians are fearing the, the 
implication of the conflict on Egypt, and Sisi is very clear about it. The king of Jordan is very clear about it. The Syrians play their own game, and the Lebanese are also frightening, frightened that you know this will spill into Lebanon, and it's that close to spilling. Actually, it is spilling into Lebanon, and the question is how badly will Lebanon will be hurt now by this event. And the Hezbollah is playing this very delicate role. They're in, they're out. They are part of the world, but not exactly part of the world. They're only responding, but they are actually paralyzing the north. And you know, it can erupt. I don't know why we're talking. It can happen. It's not something, there's nothing stable in the region. So this is a destabilized region. It's not about Israel and Palestine. The whole region is burning. And unless uh, there will be a, a global, really global attempt to rethink the future of the region, it will erupt again and again and again. It's like a volcano. Every few years, it erupts. And overall, uh, these eruptions, there were never, I think, any major successes in settling um, a more stable uh, solution, at least for a while. You know, when I was a child, my mother really loved the Bible. So she would read the Bible. We are utterly secular, but she loved the Bible, so she would read the Bible for me. For those of you who know the Bible, telling the story of the people of Israel, it says every, after every war, <coughs> and the country was quiet for 40 years. And I always said, 40 years? That's, oh, why not forever? Now that's my word, and I, I want a 40 years. <laughs> I'll set up for 40 years of quiet. But something needs to be done to attend to the problems of the region from the outside. So what, I mean, I'm not saying anything new. I think uh, the Biden administration Thank God for Biden. We wouldn't have been able to cope with what happened without Biden. Um, but he's getting weaker due to his support to Israel. Uh, the Biden administration is now airing all sorts of proposals. And something really interesting happened. Okay? As I said, I'm a veteran of uh, the peace movement. So I still remember the early days of the peace movement, I think you may remember it, where you couldn't say Palestinian state, you said Palestinian entity. Mm -hmm. um, and then you said Palestinian state, and then the concept died. In the last few elections in Israel, nobody said Palestinian state. It was like, it evaporated. Now, because Biden started speaking about the Palestinian state, Bibi is saying, um, I am the only one who can stop the creation of a Palestinian state. Which means that the next election, we'll talk in a moment about the next election, are going to be about the Palestinian state. And all my friends who think they can avoid it, I think are wrong. I just said to both Yair Lapid and Gantz, you think you can avoid it? First interview, Bibi said, I'm the only one who can stop a Palestinian state. The next person asks you, and what's your opinion? 
you can't say, I have no opinion about that. You, so the Palestinian state is going to be the question of the next election. Which is, in a way, for me, good news. Because we finally have to talk about it. It's not something that we can shove under the carpet. We see every time we shove it under the carpet, it comes back. The Palestinians are not going to disappear. We're not going to disappear. The conflict is not going to disappear. I think three things we have learned from the present situation. A, it must be built top down. All my life, I have been working on bottom up. People to people, track to talking, negotiations, <coughs> Oslo, uh, I was part of a group that was negotiated for I don't know how many years, Geneva. I've dedicated so many hours to people to people in order to come up with a solution bottom up. And there were reasonable solutions, but they were always rejected. Now the mood does not allow negotiations for people to people. There's no Set, uh, second track. Palestinians, I think I'm one of the few people who still have Palestinian friends that we text each other. There's absolutely no way we can meet each other. I can't meet my friends in Gaza or in Ramallah. It's impossible. It's too much of a risk. So the solution should come top down. Now where is the top? The second thing we learn from the present conflict is that, as I said, this is a regional and maybe global game. We are players in a game that we do not construct. And if you ask why October happened, probably because of the Saudi initiative that threatened to leave the Palestinian issues um, outside of the dialogue. And, and the people said, OK, there were the Abraham agreements. Um, Palestinians were left out. Now there will be a Saudi agreement. The Palestinians are not there. I think that was one of the reasons for the timing of what happened. Again, nothing that I say justified what happened. But we should understand that there is a political process behind it. It's not that one day people just go out and slaughter. There is a political process that, and that's the third thing that we learn, that creates the most dangerous, volatile, impossible uh, overlap in the world between religion and national conflict. And it's true on the Israeli side, and it's true on the Palestinian side. From the river to the sea, we have our right-wing messianic groups who say from the river to the sea. The Hamas says from the river to the sea, those two parties will love to kill each other. They will see it as a God's command, and they will make sure that they believe that afterwards they go to heaven, and we will live in hell. So if the conflict is boiled down to a religious conflict, nothing will help us. And more and more people on both sides are becoming more and more religious. This has nothing to do with the conflict because the whole world is becoming more religious. But 
in our case, it is extremely, extremely dangerous. And only, I believe only, and I, I'm sorry if I offend anyone, but I, I think only people who are believers can slaughter people with a smile because they believe they fulfill God's command. And again, it's true for both sides. People, normal people who take responsibility for their actions, who don't have an external justification and some sort of a eternal justification for what to do, do not do those things. They do not burn children, they do not slaughter people, they do not abuse bodies. So we must move from a religious conflict to a political conflict. Now, political conflicts are not also a great pleasure, but they're manageable. And a political conflict <coughs> is usually settled by both sides being unhappy about it, but at least ready to live with the consequences of what they do. First of all, they start by taking responsibility for what they do and for what they give up. And I'm certain that the only way we can move forward is by moving from the religious to the secular, political, conflict resolution sphere where people are ready to compromise and believe that they have the human power to compromise, which is probably one of the most important tools of political movements. They think they have the power of the people to compromise. Again, if it's God, it's not for me to compromise. Humans can compromise and bear the cost of compromising or not compromising. <coughs> so given the fact that we need a more holistic solution, global solution, uh, political solution to the region, um, I think that now, what we're trying, I think, and we see coming from all sorts of directions, um, are uh, suggestions for building some sort of a process to allow Israel gain security, stop the war, release the hostages, probably in the <coughs> other order, release the hostages, gain security, stop the war, and then start building a leadership um, in the territories, both in Gaza and the West Bank, who are able to uh, carry the burden of negotiations and compromise and a solution. This is not gonna happen immediately. Uh, Israel has destroyed the Palestinian leadership for many years, and unfortunately supported the Hamas because it was in line with Bibi's desire not to have a solution and to keep occupying the West Bank and controlling Gaza. So he supported the Hamas for many years. It's now out in the open. And, and we certainly need to replace people. Um, so both leadership, um, and, and Bibi not only because of his political opinion, but because of his reliance on the Messianic view of Zionism, which is really the mirror image of the Messianic view of uh, the Islamic fundamentalism. So what we need now is cre to create two leaderships that are able to communicate under the umbrella 
of some larger organization. Most suggestions now speak about an interim period uh, that will bring together a coalition of forces that will um, govern the region for a while. I don't know what's a, I don't know what's a coalition of forces, and I don't know what's a, for a while. A lot of people say the coalition should be built as a combination of European, American, and our Palestinian forces, whether the Palestinians will be ready to partake in it. Salam Fayyad, one of the Palestinians I highly regard as a very uh, important and thoughtful person said, I would not be placed uh, as a governor of Palestine or Gaza. I have to win this. And I can understand his view. He wants to be elected. But before we have election in Palestine and in the West Bank and in Gaza, we need to sort out some sort of a process. You can't see now open election in uh, either Gaza or the West Bank. And remember, the Palestinian Authority has been postponing elections now for, I think, 10 years. I'm not sure, but they don't want to do elections. So because they know what will happen in the election. Somebody told me, did you say that, you did? That the people in Gaza want to see the Fatah and the people in, in uh, the West Bank wants to see the Hamas. This is what people told yeah. me in the West Bank last spring. So each side is, is very cautious not to have an election right now. So we need a process and we need an interim period. So let me just say two more things. I have five more minutes. <coughs> two more things about the Israeli side. And I'll be happy to answer questions, not that I have any answers. So that's the time, but I'm ready to reflect. Um, it seems like in Israel there are two very important understanding that are sinking in. First, that we're not going to win this war. And you can't imagine how difficult it is. Because the first few days, everybody say, annihilate Hamas, kill them all, do them And everybody in Israel was sure that this is what's going to happen. Like, we're the strongest army in the Middle East. We bought our own stories, uh, unfortunately. Um, this is not going to happen. And it's also quite clear that you can't win the, over the Hamas and bring all the hostages back alive. So people understand, and this war is not going to end rapidly. Uh, it's amazing how people, you know, Middle East has been very experienced in wars. And people always in the beginning have a sense that they know how it's going to end. And they're always wrong for the worst, by the way, except maybe for uh, the Six-Day War, which actually, in the long run, was a disaster, but in the short run, it was a great victory. Um, so people understand it's not going to end. It's not going to end quickly. The Hamas is not going to be eradicated. Uh, there's no victory, big, sort of a victory picture that we will wave and say, we won, we won. There will be a misery an ongoing conflict, soldiers are going to die. Today, four soldiers died. I just opened my phone for a moment before entering the room. Four soldiers died today. And people will get 
fed up with it, as it happened in Vietnam, and it happened in Iraq, and it happened in Afghanistan. And in Israel, it's more influential than anywhere else because we know these soldiers. There are children, there are friends, children. It's small society. So people understand we need something else. It's not a military solution. It's not just taking over the Gaza Strip. It's a small place. We can do it. It's a long process. It's a painful process. And it will have to end with some sort of an agreement. Um, the second thing that people understand is that this government is not qualified to lead us. I have a, a public opinion poll from today um, showing that if the elections were held today, then Benny Gantz, whose only virtue is that he's not TV and is very quiet about everything, um, gets 37 seats. It's amazing, right? It's, it's going to be by far the largest party. Uh, I don't know what the social policies are. I don't know anything about him except um, what we know. The Likud is down to 16 seats. Lapid is down to 14 seats. And all the rest of the parties are smaller. So actually now, if there was election today, you could create a cultural government without all the fanatics on the right and without the Likud. Which means that the people in the Likud would, would not want an election right now. They know how to read the policy. So. Uh, and the big questions we as Israeli face, every time my friends say, ah, all the cousins are to be responsible because they didn't get rid of the Hamas, I said, I'll say it after we get rid of it. it it's going to be hard. Because in the parliament, he has a majority, quite a solid majority. But unfortunately, I think we are going into an eruption of violence in the streets that will lead to elections at the end of the day. I don't know how long it will take. I assume with Ben Greer being the Minister of Intern in Interiors, Internal Security, People are going to die in the streets for the first time in, ever in Israel. But once the more and more hostages will come back in coffins, there will be a huge eruption <coughs> of violence. And I don't know how long it will take, but there will be, I think, a change of government at some point. I don't think that the Palestinians in Gaza have enough power to get rid of the Hamas. They need something that will happen from the outside to help them rebuild the leadership. I don't know. I don't know about, about the inner po internal politics of Gaza, how they can replace the Hamas with a political force that is able, that is able to negotiate uh, with Israel. The second thing that is happening is that people um, start to get adjusted to the thought that if there will be a solution, it will include the Palestinian state. Yesterday, Eugene asked me why I'm not running again. I said, because my views uh, are supported by less than 1% of the population. So, not a, not a great prospect. However, 
So there, there was a public opinion forum that was very interesting. Uh, we asked the public opinion poll I relied on was about how many people in Israel now support a two-state solution. It was less than 1%. It used to be around 40. It was like going down dramatically. But the poll today asked the, the question, and that, I think, made me realize something. It said, are you in favor of a comprehensive agreement that includes A, the return of all the hostages, as I said, number one priority for everyone. B, the creation of a demilitarized Palestinian state and normalization with Saudi. Can you guess how many people support that? 90. How many? 90%. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from 1% to 90 is a bit dramatic. 51%. And do not know 20%. What it means something very significant, and I'll add with two, two things. First of all, that the larger the offer, the more attractive it is. If you just say one thing, I, I would guess out of this uh, 51%, a lot of people saw just get back the, the hostages. So they said yes. But then in Saudi, look. People always think they know how people would react <coughs> to a political process, you know. But when Sadat came to Israel, most Israelis were against the peace solution with Egypt. Once Sadat came, all fell in love with him and all went to Egypt and supported the peace agreement. The Abraham agreements, when they were just put on the table, everybody was against them. Said, so, you know, all these people in the Gulf, we don't want to, you know, who are they? Why should we even start working with them? Two minutes later, everybody was going to Dubai and uh, wearing uh, jalabias and playing in the casino. <laughs> and, and, and people from Dubai were like, adored in Israel. They were not Israel. People were clapping in the street for, you know, you see Arab with the jalabia in Israel, right? And people clap because they are from the Gulf. Don't ask people what they think would happen. Give them an offer that they can't resist. And I think that's what we have to ask now from the international community. Build an offer people cannot resist. It should be, Israel is less in, of a need, there's a less of a need in Israel for an economic incentive. Egypt needs money, Jordan needs money, the Palestinians need money. If there will be an offer that is good enough, for all sides involved, and it's very important that every side will feel they got something from the deal, there is a good chance people will support it. And even if they won't support it beforehand, the moment they see it, an American president lands in Israel with two, I don't know, presidents from Europe and five Arab leaders, and within three hours, people change their mind. So there will be the fanatics, they will land the streets, and they will do a lot of damage, and there will be fanatics on the other side, and they will do. But the majority of people, I think this poll shows, and other polls that we know show, will say yes to a reasonable solution. So this is actually up to you guys. We cannot produce it from within. And certainly, I'm certain the Palestinians cannot produce it from within. There needs to be a 
the way the world takes responsibility over the really miserable Middle East and put forward some serious solutions, serious resources, um, and you know, as Al Capote always knew, and offer you can't resist. And once you uh, put it on the table, I think we in Israel, the peace forces in Israel will be revived, the peace forces in Palestine will be revived, the region will be revived, and people will start working. Now we're working, but, you know, we're preaching for a government who is not willing to listen to us. Um, we need the help in order to make it um, happen. Usually people, you know, when I started my days in the peace movement, people used to say, don't go abroad and air all your problems. We'll solve it. I say to myself and to other people, go abroad, air your problems, and ask for help. You know, as all your good psychologists tell you, when you're in deep distress, ask for help. Maybe something good will happen. Thank you.